I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We continue our study in the life of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll read uh, the first 17 verses. I invite you to follow along as God speaks to us through his word. Uh, if you're using the Bible provided in the, uh, in the pew, it's page 305. Now when the king uh, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king say, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And the violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. For the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with, with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving Father, thank you for trusting us with your word. Thank you, O oh God, um, for breathing, uh, uh, allowing your spirit to move through the writer uh, to communicate your word to us. Father, I pray that this time would be informative and formative that we would understand what your message is. You would 
give us information so that we would understand what you are saying to your church today. And I pray, Father, that these words would be formative, that you would form us into a people of God whose only desire is to give you honor and glory, to dwell in your presence with great delight. We thank you, O oh God, for your faithfulness. And we pray, O oh God, as we celebrate that, that we would do that in a way that would accurately reflect who you are and who we are because of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We continue our study in the, in the book of 2 Samuel. Last week, uh, you remember, we stopped with David dancing. And um, I have to tell you that uh, God's gifted us in our, in our ministry, in, in the pastoral ministry, with different personalities. Some pastors give out Chick-fil-A cards and Others are more reserved. I, I tend to move a little bit when I sing because I'm moved by the music. And, and I was looking forward last week. I brought my cell phone, and I thought I would catch Pastor Mike Heron dancing in the uh, pulpit as he demonstrated to us what, it, what David did when he danced. Well, he, well, he didn't do that uh, last week, and I'm not going to do it this week. <laughs> but why dancing? As we look at the text, there are three events that happened at the end of chapter 6 that mark the occasion for the dance. There was rejoicing in verse 12, that the people of God rejoiced before the Lord. There was uh, David dancing with all his might, and there was a great shout and the blasting of the horn. All of these things indicate joy. What was the occasion of joy? The occasion of joy was this, that the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, was back in the midst of the people of Israel. And they were excited, and David was excited, because God's presence was there. God was there, he wanted to be with his people, and his people wanted to be with him. So it makes sense as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the king, while he lived in his house and he enjoyed peace, this first thought came to his mind. I live in a house of cedar and God's ark resides in a tent. That's not fair. Let me build him a house. Let me build him a house of cedar. Let me, let me bring it up to the place where um, the ark of the Lord is held in honor, even as I'm honored in my house. It wasn't a bad thing that David wanted to do this. I think that was a, a, an admirable thing on David's part. Even Nathan, on God's prophet, said, do what seems right in your eyes. I have to mention, this is the first time Nathan appears in the narrative of David in his life. He has, Nathan has three uh, significant appearances uh, within uh, um, uh, history that the Bible records. The first is here, when uh, he speaks to David about the uh, house of the Lord, and the second is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when he confronts uh, David because of his sin of Bathsheba, and he utters those words that we pastors love to uh, say, and we point as we say, Nathan said, you are the man. 
We love to say that. Uh, he, he also appeared the last time when uh, Nathan plays a significant role in Sol Solomon being ascended to the throne. Uh, both Nathan and David support the building of a house for God. But our text will tell us that God doesn't support that. Now, before I get to that, I, I want to uh, share with you, as we read this text, you'll notice something. Um, in the body of Christ, we call this passage the Davidic Covenant. It is a Davidic covenant, the covenant with David. Um, but you will not see the word covenant in this passage or in the companion passage in First uh, Chronicles chapter 17, except in the first verse where it references the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but that God made a covenant with David, you won't see it. What you will see in this passage, and I hope you see in this passage, is the overemphasis of God's involvement in building a house through David, for David, and for us. God is emphasized in this passage. And so we begin by looking at uh, God responding to David's request to build a house. And, Dave, and God says this, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Now, I don't think that God was chiding David in any way. I don't think he was correcting him. I don't think he was saying, that's a bad idea, David. I think what he was doing, he wanted to emphasize, if I wanted a house, I would have somebody else build it. If it was important to me to have a house, I would ask someone to build. I would instruct them. But that wasn't important. I want you to notice what was important. What was important to God was that he would dwell with his people. He would be among them. He would dwell in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant was the central focus where God would, uh, would meet with his, would reside, and the people of Israel would know that God was with them, and he would do that in the midst of a tent. Now, cedar, the reason that David said he wanted the Ark of the Covenant to be in a house of cedar, cedar was an expensive wood. It was from Lebanon. Uh, it was a valuable wood. It had great cost. Uh, the wood that the uh, Ark of the Covenant was made of and the poles for the tent of the tabernacle the, were all made of acacia wood. And acacia wood was uh, wood around the uh, region of Mount Sinai. Now, I love that because the Ark of the Lord was created near Sinai. And God called the people of Israel to gather the wood in their area. Normal, everyday hard, sturdy wood to honor him and to display his magnificence. And that reminds us, it reminds me, that God places us here in this area, common, everyday people, to display his glory, to be a testimony of his presence in the CSRA. He is still about being the God of presence. Uh, God would have directed others to build long ago, but he didn't. 
because he wanted the tent to communicate two things. I think he wanted the tent to communicate something that the one title of the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. Uh, the tent of meeting emphasized the fact that God communicated with his people. He spoke to Moses, and Moses spoke to the people. That God was in the business of talking to his people. You know, God still talks to us. He talks to us through his word. Every time we read scripture, God is talking to us. He still speaks to his people. The second term for the tabernacle is called tent. And that is supposed to uh, remind us of the temporary dwelling of God in this sense. That wherever the people of Israel were, God would go. So his tent picked up when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He was with them every step of the way. And every time the tent settled, uh, the people of Israel would settle. And whenever God told them to move, they'd take up the tent and he would go with them. That God would resound, re, uh, reside with his people. And the third thing about the tabernacle it demonstrated two beautiful things, both the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. The transcendence of God, God is magnificent. He is holy. He is, he is uh, without sin. He is righteous. He is other than we. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's nothing in all creation that can adequately, adequately describe God because of his majesty. Eminence of God means that he decided to dwell with us. He came close to us. You know, we celebrated God's uh, transcendence and eminence in the last song that we sang, uh, Only a Holy God. We celebrated God's transcendence when we, uh, read, when we said this, Who else commands all the hosts of the heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper, I love this, and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. That celebrates God's magnificence. And we celebrated his eminence when we said, who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would off offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. We celebrate both God's uh, magnificence and his dwelling with his people. The tabernacle offered that. And what God is saying, I think, to uh, David is this. It's more important to me that I dwell with my people than reside in a house of cedar. Uh, there are two accounts of the tabernacle I wanted to bring up also. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was uh, seen as, uh, there was one account called the Eloist account in Exodus 35, 7 through 10. And that emphasized God's, uh, the tabernacle's portability. Uh, and I've already said this, but where the people of God were, God would be. The second is called the priestly account. And that is found in chapters 25 through 31 in Exodus. And that emphasizes the centrality of God within his people. See, the tabernacle was placed in the middle 
of the community of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel would camp, would camp around the tabernacle. And uh, most of us believe that their, the openings of their tent would face the tabernacle to remind them that God was central. He wanted to be a significant part in their lives, not just someone that they would think about on, on the Sabbath or when there were issues, that every day he would have a part in their lives. God's desire was to dwell with his people. Now, secondly, God took a shepherd and made him king. Look at verse 8 again. Verse 8 says, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Now that takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. You remember when God was searching for a king, he went to the house of Jesse. And Jesse paraded all of his sons except one before Samuel. And Samuel said, and I'm paraphrasing, is this the only uh, is this it? Do you have any more boys? And uh, Jesse said, I have one other son. He's out in the field tending sheep. He was the shepherd. And what God's saying here is, I took a shepherd and I made him a king. I can't help but think, when David ascended the throne, most, uh, some scholars think that he wrote Psalm 23 at that time. And he was looking at God as his shepherd. He said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And all of the things that he learned as a shepherd, he attributed to God that God would anoint his head with oil. As he took care of the sheep, God would take care of him. As he protected the sheep with the rod and the staff, he's, as he corrected the sheep with that rod and staff, that God would do that for him. And as the sheep wandered and he would chase after them until he caught up with the sheep and brought him back, he said, your goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And so he said that uh, he was celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ is the king who is the shepherd. And also Christ said that in John chapter 10. He said that I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is the shepherd leader. God took a shepherd and made him prince. And he did three things for this shepherd. Number one, he never left them. The passage told us that he would never leave them. Uh, and uh, the history of David proves that God never left them. When David was running away from Saul, some of my favorite stories are those um, pursuit uh, events. One of them is uh, when David and his men were on one side of the mountain and Saul and his other men were on the other side of the mountain. And as you remember, they were getting closer and closer to each other. And I can almost imagine they were so close to each other that all David had to do was go, and they would be found out. But just before the Saul found the people, there was a messenger that came to Saul that said, the Philistines are attacking the people. And Saul went away. That's an obvious example of God never leaving 
his people. And one more, Saul was a man of war. He was an excellent um, warrior, and he knew how to use a spear. And at least two times he tried to pin David against the wall in his own house with his spear, and God protected him. God never departed from David. He would never leave him. And then he says he would give him victory over his enemies. Uh, David had victory in his military campaigns. In fact, one of the um, celebrations of his victory became a sense of contention between him and Saul. You remember this, don't you? The ladies of the community would sing this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul became jealous because of that. That's because every time that David fought, God protected him against his enemies. I have to say that one of the uh, blessings of uh, this promise, sometimes in prophecy, there are two understandings of fulfillment. One is the near and one is the far. So one means that God is talking to the people who are listening and the other means that it also applies to the people yet to come. Uh, so God protected David and his enemies. Uh, God also protects us from our enemies. And our enemies are not the people who cut us off in traffic on Washington Road. Our enemy is not the person who shops at Kroger and in, in the express lane, they have a full cart and they're standing there on their cell phone. That's not our enemy. Our enemy is sin, is death, and Christ defeats our enemy. He's the one who takes care of that. Now, finally, uh, God said to David in uh, verse 9, he says, and I, uh, he told Nathan, tell him I will give him a great name, a great name. The last time that God said that was in Genesis chapter 12, when he was talking to uh, Abraham, and he said this, and I quote, Genesis chapter 12, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. The fact that God kept his promise to Abraham is a joy and a delight to us because it reminds us that God keeps his promises. And he made Abram's name great, and he made Jesus's name, excuse me, David's name great as well. And then uh, I think uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah both saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of this. I'll just briefly mention Isaiah 9, 7 says this, uh, speaking of the son given to us, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, will do this. That the one from the throne of David would be the righteous one. And then Jeremiah put it this way. He said, in those days, this is Jeremiah 33, uh, 15 and 16. Listen, in those days, 
at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. He's repeating what God promised. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ of the fulfillment of the promise made to David. And then finally, God establishes an everlasting throne. Verses 17, 12 through 17 celebrates that. On God establishing an everlasting throne. There are three things that I think that God tells David here. The first is, death will not annul uh, the promise for the throne. Death will not annul the promise of it. You see that in verses 12 to 13. I, I think that uh, Peter, in his sermon uh, at Pentecost, celebrated that. Listen to what he said. This is Acts chapter 2. Peter said this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on this throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of, of the Christ, that he, uh, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, and of that we are all witnesses. And what Peter is saying here, the promise that God made to David, we've seen in Jesus Christ. And that death would not annul this covenant, we see that the death of Jesus Christ not only uh, didn't annul the co covenant, it brought forth the covenant. It was through his death and his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God that we have this hope. The second thing we see, um, David uh, was told that sin cannot destroy it. One of the wonderful things to do when there are two passages of Scripture that speak about the same event, um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, and 1 Chronicles chapter 17 um, speak about the same event. And they, when you read them, are almost word for word, except this section that I'm going to read to you. And whenever you see something that's different, it highlights it. And it's supposed to tell us to think about what the author is saying. Why is this so important that God told the writer to the book of Samuel to include this? So uh, let, me, let me tell you what, uh, what I mean. Look at verse 14 in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 14 says this. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that's also said in First Chronicles, but this is what's uh, only here. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. I think this uh, 
points out two things, both uh, a prophecy for the near and the far. The near. Uh, I think this talks about uh, David's son, Solomon, the one who would ascend the throne after him. That God's assuring them that even though Solomon sins, I won't depart from him like I did uh, Saul. My covenant love will remain with him. And history tells us that God absolutely kept that promise. Here's the far. I think it points to the Lord Jesus Christ who bore stripes, who bore our iniquity, who had no sin of his own, but he bore our sin. And with his stripes, Isaiah 53 says, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I think that that's something that uh, David is uh, told even in this passage. And I think the last thing that he's told in verse 16 is time will not exhaust it. Time will not exhaust it. In verse 16, two times the word forever, olam, forever is used. And one time in verse 13. And what that is supposed to tell us is that God's covenant is forever and ever and ever. Uh, His promise to David was to David and to his son and to his grandson and to his great-grandson and on and on until Christ, who was born from the line of David. And it was that son who brought in the initiation of the kingdom of God. It is so interesting to me that David wanted to build a house for God. And God said, no, I'm not gonna, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house. Uh, I'm going to build a house. And I think that house is a temple. But I don't think it's Solomon's temple. I think the temple that God spoke of when he built the house is uh, spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says this. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We, the body of Christ, is a house that God built for the glory of God. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. His house will celebrate the fact that God is still a holy God. And he's still, his priority is that he dwells with his people. And together we will celebrate that. The Lord's Supper celebrates also the future hope of the return of Christ. Because every time we celebrate this, we do it until Christ returns. Let's pray. We thank you, O God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised king. We find hope in your promise delivered through Nathan, and we celebrate Christ by echoing Handel Messiah when he wrote, and he shall reign forever and ever. And to that we say, hallelujah, hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.